Welcome to the New Legal Realism Podcast. The New Legal Realism Project promotes rigorous and genuinely interdisciplinary scholarship on law in action. This is the fifth podcast in our series in which we're interviewing various scholars in the New Legal Realism movement. Today we'll hear from Thomas Mitchell, Professor of Law and Co-Director of the Program in Real Estate and Community Development Law at Texas A&M University School of Law. Prior academic appointments include the University of Wisconsin Law School and DePaul University College of Law. He was also a visiting research fellow at the American Bar Foundation and a faculty fellow at the University of Chicago's Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture. Prior to working in academia, Professor Mitchell worked in Washington, D.C., first as an associate for a large law firm and then as a judicial clerk for federal judge Emmett Sullivan. He has also worked on Capitol Hill, where he worked on drafting legislation. His research primarily addresses real property issues that impact poor and disadvantaged communities, many of which are rural. More broadly, he researches issues of economic inequality, specifically focusing on how the ability or inability of individuals or communities to build and retain assets can impact inequality. What you're about to hear is Professor Mitchell discussing how his research on partition law exposed some significant social and racial inequalities. But importantly, he didn't stop there. He'll discuss how he continued to pursue the problem and work to make sure that changes made their way into policy. Before we get to all of that, let's start with an overview of partition law and how it works. Partition law is what we would say in property law, the law that governs exits from common ownership and real common, real um, common real property ownership, sorry. And there are a couple different forms of common real property ownership um, that are governed by partition law. Uh, so essentially, if a group of people owns property in common and somebody wants to exit from the common ownership structure, they can do that by working on an agreement with their common owners. But partition law comes into a uh, effect when such a voluntary agreement can't be worked out, and then have a uh, then then one of the common owners can file a partition action, and then the court then decides how will exit occur. Essentially, there are two major remedies that courts can order in partition actions, and these have been remedies that have been available since the 1800s in this country. So a court can either decide to resolve the partition action by physically dividing the land and then allocating those parcels that would come out of the division among the tenants in common. So this most often implicates tenancy in common property. Mm-hmm. The second um, option courts have is to order a forced sale of the property and then to distribute the proceeds of that sale among the common owners consistent with whatever is their particular percentage ownership of the whole property. Statutory law in the clear majority of states indicates that physical division, known as partition in kind or partition by division, is supposed to be the preferred remedy. 
Beginning in the early 1900s, courts, however, started on a routine basis ordering a forced sale, even in cases where it would have been practical to do a physical division. Professor Mitchell's research details the development of this law, and he notes that over time there ended up being a departure from what statutory law might indicate should be the dominant remedy. Over time, courts started reversing this presumption with a preference for the physical division. Essentially, with respect to uh, re reversing that presumption, courts did a couple things. One is they developed what I call the economics-only test. Um, and what does that mean? So that means that in resolving a partition action, um, when you had some of the common owners, and many times we're talking about family-owned property, who wanted to retain ownership of that property, um, and they would cite things like the property had been within the family or had been owned by the family for generations, um, that it had ancestral value, that sometimes the land had cultural or other historic value, um, or that the land or property was providing basic shelter to some of the uh, common owners, and that if there was a for sale, they could either be rendered homeless or they would then have uh, to live in much inferior kind of housing. So those are uh, kind of a set of concerns that are referred to as non-economic uh, concerns, more or less. And what courts did uh, was they developed this economics-only test, which indicated that a court resolving a partition action could only take into account economic factors. Um, it was based upon this notion that uh, it was kind of a law and economics notion that the whole goal of uh, resolving a partition action was to maximize wealth and that some of those non-economic factors that I detailed, court said, well, we can't quantify those and everything is about quantification and since we can't quantify those, we assign those zero value. So in many states, uh, courts can't take into account these non-economic non factors at all. By making that move, um, it then very much undercut many of the ways that these families, these owners, had valued their property. Um, mm -hmm. So they, you know, oftentimes they couldn't even provide evidence of how the property was deeply meaningful to them in these ancestral, cultural, historical kind of ways. The second problem was that even if you take the economics-only test on its face, uh, it was a huge problem that these courts were making all kinds of economic assumptions about why these sales would maximize wealth. So they kind of start with this proposition that that sometimes property or land has economies of scale, that it's more valuable if you keep it together as a whole than if you divide it. This is where we start getting into a substantial problem, was that so much of this area of the wall was kind of influenced at the kind of meta level by this simplistic law and economics theory. Um, and then there had been very little analysis of 
well, how do these sales actually occur? What are the conditions of the sale? Are they sales that would produce a fair market value price and therefore mm-hmm. produce all this economic benefit that had been theorized? Or are they not, right? So I think right. that's kind of where my some of my research came into in terms of exposing the gap between the theory and what actually was happening on the ground. So I talked to Professor Mitchell about how his research began. Uh, it was the late 90s. He was part of an LLM master's program at the University of Wisconsin Law School. And for his thesis, he ended up visiting a number of communities in the rural south. He started talking predominantly to property owners, many of whom were African-American and who owned heirs property. And they ended up telling him some really interesting stories about how these partition sales had actually resulted in many families that they knew, and even their own families, involuntarily losing their property. So they would typically tell me that the uh, tenant in common or the common owner who initiated these partition actions frequently was somebody who wasn't in the family, someone who had bought out a family member who owned a very small percentage of the property because this form of ownership, when you own an interest in it, it's kind of like owning shares in a corporation. So you have an Uh undivided fractional interest in the entire property. Um, You don't own any particular piece of the property. So it's like owning, you know, 100 shares in Coca-Cola. Okay. Yeah, so so the families would say that you know, some outsider, oftentimes a real estate investor or a real estate speculator, would buy out a family member, and typically this family member was a distant cousin who didn't even live in the South. They lived in Detroit. They lived in Chicago. Mm-hmm. They lived in Los Angeles. Um, they had never actually been to the property um, because the property was in its third or fourth generation of ownership. And that distant cousin owned a 3% interest, say. Um, and after that, you know, outsider bought that interest, it immediately went to local state court, filed a partition action, and requested the court to order a forced sale, even though mm-hmm. all of the other owners who owned the other 97% wanted to maintain ownership of the property. And then mm-hmm. they told me that the court's frequently ordered the sale, that wow. the sale then produced, uh, it, it did not vindicate the goal of wealth maximization. It often produced um, a price well below market value, and in many cases, a fire sale price. And what I mean by a fire sale price is uh, the property sold for, you know, 50%, 40%, 30%, 15% of its market value. Um, mm-hmm. And then the last thing that they told me was that despite the fact that they were devastated both by losing their property and losing a substantial amount of the real estate wealth they had, that under many of the state laws that applied um, in, in these various states, that they were then required to pay a percentage of the attorney's fees of the party wow. that requested the court to order a forced sale. <laughs> and, you know, so they described it, and I'm, you know, dutifully writing all this down. It bears <laughs> zero resemblance to anything I learned in law school. 
definitely not. <laughs> and my initial, yeah, my initial intuition was that most of these property owners, they were disadvantaged. They mm-hmm. had a severe lack of access to legal services. And then I just initially, although, of course, I didn't tell them this, I initially just assumed that they just lacked legal sophistication because the property law in this area certainly could not operate the way they were explaining. So he goes back to Madison, and he starts doing some standard legal research, searching Westlaw and Nexus to find out more about these kinds of cases. And he finds nothing. So he realizes he really needs to get his hands on court decisions from local state courts. And what's important about these local court decisions is that they generally weren't appealed. So that's when he learns that Westlaw and Lexis databases represent cases that are appealed or their trial court opinions from a federal court. The databases don't contain the local opinions. So when I started reviewing some of these local, you know, state court opinions, it began to totally verify what the families had been telling me. Wow. Um, and so I just, I remember reading the first opinion or two after finding nothing on Westlaw and Lexis and then just being stunned because my assumption that these folks were basically unsophisticated. Um, right. I don't know. They might, be, they might be unsophisticated in other ways, but they were not unsophisticated about how the law of partition was actually impacting uh-huh. their family ownership and their lives because they were spot on about, you know, everything that they said actually ended up checking out. Um, that's, so, yeah, you know, incredible. I think that, that's, that's one of the things I learned about, you know, I think we'll be talking socio-legal terms as there's often a litigation pyramid and that the cases that appear at the very top, those that are in places like Westlaw and Lexis, um, sometimes are not necessarily representative of the legal mm-hmm. phenomenon that's happening below the surface. Um, and I think in this particular area, that was totally true, because when I kind of looked at some of the cases that were in West, Westlaw and Lexis where there was partition action, it became clear that these were not poor people, they were not... Um, disadvantaged people for the most part. They were people of color. Um, Mm -hmm. And so experiencing partition law as someone who has resources, can hire attorneys, um, is not a minority, uh, oftentimes it's quite distinct from uh, being in a partition action when you are disadvantaged, when you are a person of color, when you are somebody who has little wealth and little income and little ability to hire um, attorneys or to get legal services. So you know, that's some of the kind of methodology I use in uncovering um, this phenomenon, which I would say now when I've seen the magnitude of this phenomenon, um, given my work over the past 20 years, it's, it's one of those cases that this was a legal phenomenon hiding in plain sight, right? You just needed to talk yeah. to people on the ground. <laughs> So he's doing this research in what is sort of an obscure area of the law and discovers this this huge need for legal reform. Um, and so what I love about this story is that he doesn't just stop at the research, he doesn't just publish and call it a day. Uh, he ends up actually playing a major role in legal reform in this area. My initial idea when I got this, I was thinking about legal reform, but I had a different time horizon. Initially, I thought that I have a career where I would 
you know, publish useful, meaningful research on these um, property issues that were often neglected by other legal academics. And you know, between that and doing some direct services, the initial idea was at the tail end of my career when I had retired and I was an emeritus professor with a lot of time on my hands, <laughs> that I would then leverage this career's worth of scholarship and other kind of social contact, uh, contacts I had made and then try to get involved in legal reform. Um, so that was the initial idea. Well, that uh, apple cart got upset pretty early on <laughs> when in, it was, uh, big, back in 2001, the Associated Press ended up doing an award-winning series. It was a three-part series on uh, land loss within the African-American community, black land loss. Mm-hmm. And it turns out that part two of their series focused on the very legal issue of these partition actions that I had been working on. And when I began working on this area of property law, uh, it wasn't considered a very prestigious or elite area. It was kind of what I would call the backwater of property law. And as a result, um, there weren't many of us who were working on this. Like I was one of a very few people who was doing research in this area. So when the Associated Press came along and they had two investigative reporters who spent six months talking to hundreds of people in the South and then uncovered the significance of these partition actions. You know, I, I went from you know, young, at the time, property professor studying this fringe, marginal backwater issue mm-hmm. to getting a call from the Associated Press and uh, being identified as the national expert on partition. Uh, well, um, and it really was the Associated Press's uh, publication of their article that served as the catalyst to get other important stakeholders interested and committed and involved. So, for example, mm-hmm. after the AP article, um, the leadership of the American Bar Association's Real Property Trust and Estate section decided to form a task force to look at a range of possible um, solutions. And one of the solutions was to submit a proposal to the Uniform Law Commission. You know, the Uniform Law Commission is the organization that has had the longest record of developing Uniform Acts. That's their lexicon. Most people um, don't know what a Uniform Act is, so I phrase it as a model state statute. Um, and so the Uniform Law Commission has been uh, developing these model state statutes for 127 years. They're most known for um, producing the Uniform Commercial Code, the UCC, which they did with the American Law Institute. Um, so we sub- we submitted a proposal. Uh, I'm sorry, so I was asked to be part of this task force that the ABA established. Uh-huh. It was called the Property Preservation Task Force. We had three different strategies. The I'd say the one that we considered the longest shot was to submit a proposal to the Uniform Law Commission uh, because in their history they had done very few projects that, you know, explicitly had a social justice or even a racial justice component. Um, But, you know, we felt obligated because we thought 
of the three strategies, this one would have the greatest impact. But it was the strategy we thought that we would have the least chance of um, you know, being successful, given that it was it would be quite an outlier for the Uniform Law Commission to take on a project of this type. Um, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, to my surprise and <laughs> to everybody else's surprise, uh, the Uniform Law Commission back in 2007 decided that our proposal was one of the four or five that they would accept and they would establish mm-hmm. a drafting committee, which, uh, frankly, I found stunning at the time. And then yeah. three months three months later, um, I got a call from the executive director of the Uniform Law Commission, and he asked me to serve as the reporter, which is um, in the Uniform Law Commission lexicon. The reporter is the person who has the principal drafting responsibility for their Uniform Act projects. We spent three years drafting um, our act uh, uh-huh. as in any drafting process. There were, it was kind of a little bit of a roller coaster ride. Um, but ultimately, I think we ended up coming up with a very strong act that provides incredibly enhanced protections for those who own heirs' property or tenancy in common property um, that really makes a meaningful improvement to this area of the law. So the act gets finalized in 2010, and the essential components are as follows. First, in a partition action, before the court does anything, it will give the common property owners the right to buy out the fractional interest of anyone who has requested that the court do a forced sale. So it provides a buyout remedy. The second thing is it provides substance to the preference for physical division and not a forced sale. So rather than looking at economic factors only, there's this idea of the totality of the circumstances. So it requires looking at both economic and non-economic factors. So the court will have to weigh things like standing ownership, cultural or historical value, or whether the forced sale might undermine how someone has been using the property legally. And finally, in a subset of these cases uh, where the appropriate remedy is the forced sale, it provides a sales process that will produce a fair market value of that land. So. We promulgate the act. It has these substantial changes from what had been the general background partition law. These changes Uh represent the biggest change to partition law since some changes were made in the early to mid 1800s. So then the question is, so then the question is, are we actually going to be able to get any state to enact (laughs) what our paper? Um, and that, there was, uh, to put it mildly, there was incredible skepticism. Um, and part of that skepticism was because in its 127-year history, the Uniform Law Commission has promulgated or finalized 38 Uniform Real Property Acts. Um, of all the areas that the Uniform Law Commission has developed, Uniform Acts. The area of real property or real estate has been its least successful. So the Uh-oh. median, yeah, the median number of states to enact into law any of their Uniform Real Property Acts is one, meaning well, that many of them have totally failed. Meaning that no state or other jurisdiction is enacting law. Um, 
them about our act because, A, it was a Uniform Real Property Act. B, it was actually a Uniform Real Property Act that was addressing a core social justice and racial justice matter, which, Mm -hmm. in theory, people, including some of those who were involved in the drafting, they they thought, well, that's honorable, but that's also going to ensure that um, the act will not pass because the people it's designed to benefit lack political capital, they lack social networks, they lack you know, financial or economic capital. Um, So that was the baseline assumption was that many people, even when we finalized it, said, well, you know, this is just going to be another Uniform Real Property Act that will end up being a total failure. Much to his surprise, there has actually been quite a bit of success in getting the states to enact this particular act. As of the date of this recording, June 2020, 15 states have enacted the act. Uh, Congress also passed legislation giving preference for certain federal farm development loans to applicants from states that have adopted the Uniform Act, which Congress recognized as a good way for resolving title issues and allowing families to retain generational wealth. The biggest prize has been the traction that the Act has garnered in the South. So even somebody like myself, who I think... mm, Many people who have worked on this issue would characterize me as somebody who for years was trying to keep the flame of hope alive, though it (laughs) seemed like we didn't have much reasons to be very hopeful. Um, So I'm kind of on the high end of optimism, but Mm -hmm. even I was surprised that, that this would actually appeal to a number of legislatures in the South, so... We're going to close this podcast with some comments from Professor Mitchell about the new legal realism movement generally, and also some of the lessons that he's learned from his experiences doing this research and working on legal reform. Part of the NLR movement recognizes that there are scholars um, who sometimes are studying legal phenomenon, but the scholars are from you know different disciplines. And oftentimes, the language that they use um, can, at some level, have the appearance of being very similar, like the similar words can be used, but they're actually, the meanings are quite different. Um, You know, so so I have, um, in some of the work I have been doing with people from other disciplines, you know, that issue has come up. And... um, you know, so I've, for example, in referring to heirs' property, uh, oftentimes I've, I've worked with anthropologists, for example, and they refer to this property as, well, this is collective ownership in like some collective, um, mm-hmm. and this is not private property. It's collective ownership. And so, you know, we've had kind of long discussions about just the terminology because from the legal side, this is not, this is private ownership, right? Um, now, maybe this um, property has particular cultural residents in certain communities, um, but there is a quite a different meaning, like legally, when you refer to something as collective ownership versus private right. ownership. Um, right. so, so part of that is, you know, I've been kind of engaged that w- with these 
uh, folks from these other disciplines to kind of help them understand that, you know, when they are speaking to various audiences, that um, that they need to be, because oftentimes they will not just talk from the perspective of anthropology, they'll start talking about the law, that this is a collective form of ownership under the law. So, you know, part of it is, you know, just like others who are uh, scholars uh, in the NLR movement, you know, we, we are having these issues of translating um, right. the language we use, right? So I think that that's, that's one thing. I think the I think the other thing that I've learned and um and I think of this as being consistent with, with the NLR, right? So I think oh, many people in the NLR movement would only be focusing on how do you translate um among scholars from different disciplines who sometimes have different terminology or different methodologies. I also think of kind of very deeply about how do we translate our academic work mm-hmm. so that it actually has resonance among policymakers. Right. And and you know, I think oftentimes I've read academic work where there is some policy prescription or legal reforms. Um and it's almost written in a way that it suggests that the brilliance of the ideas of the reforms will somehow be self-actualizing. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that there are not actually people called members of legislatures or other decision makers who are real people who are in real professions um, who actually have to take action. And mm-hmm. so just, you know, some of the things I've learned. And then also, um, you know, you have to be attentive. I guess this is being a lawyer, right? So just being attentive to your audience. So mm-hmm. I think the last uh, last example I'll give is, you know, people have asked me, well, how is it possible that you've had the success in the South of all places? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think in every state or jurisdiction we've worked is we've had to do a lot of groundwork. We've had to um, kind of study the people who will ultimately be making the decision. And part of that studying is to understand what particular framing of the issue might be more persuasive to them than maybe to some other audience or some other legislature in a different region of the country. And so in in many of the, not exclusively the South, but in many of the Southern states, what I've recognized is that the importance of framing our particular statute um, as addressing the issue of um, trying to change the law to enhance private property rights and to protect mm-hmm. family real estate wealth um, has had particular resonance in many of the states that we've worked at in the South, right? So, you know, so I don't, you know, so at, at that point, it's kind of a matter of emphasizing. I, you know, it is certainly true that our statute has this broader significance. It does have a racial justice component, but it's also true. It, it does protect private property. It does protect family real estate wealth. Um, right. And so, 
you know, essentially in terms of a methodology is, you know, I've just had to learn and to train others that if you're going to be effective in whatever state you're working on this, you have to have a very nuanced, deep knowledge of the people you need to get to support the act, including the members of the legislature. Um, And so I, I think that's just something that I didn't think of at all. Um, right. When I first began my work, uh, it was clearly a racial justice project. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't think of alternative ways it could be framed. Um, and, you know, initially I didn't spend a whole lot of time thinking about what might be other communities or may there, might there be other communities that essentially are experiencing a similar phenomenon because they're mm-hmm. also kind of low wealth. They also have lack of access to legal services. Um, and, you know, what I, in, in this process, I actually have identified a number of other communities, whether they're poor whites in Appalachia, Native Hawaiians, some Native Americans, Latinos in places like, um, you know, South Texas. Um, and I, ultimately have been able to reach out to those communities and identify how this phenomenon is actually a real life phenomenon for their communities, which has then been able to help when we're actually advocating for the act to make it more universal in application and therefore more appealing to um, a number of important stakeholders, including many in various legislatures. I'd like to thank Francis Tung and the many researchers who are collaborating on this new Legal Realism project and for working to make this podcast happen. Visit NLR at www.newlegalrealism.org or on the blog at newlegalrealism.wordpress.com where new legal realists post on everything from law to the latest in jazz. You can also email us at newlegalrealism at gmail.com This is April Faith Slaker with the New Legal Realism Project. Thanks for listening.